This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us once again, our colleague David Camfield. Hi, David. Hi. Um, we got so much to get into. It is the last week of Emmy voting. So we have two interviews with Emmy nominees. Uh, our colleague Hillary Buse has talked to Maya Rudolph about her nominated roles on SNL as well as Big Mouth. And then I talked to Juno Temple about her nominated work on Ted Lasso, which turns out to be the show of the moment. It's season one that is nominated for all the Emmys, but season two is on the air right now. And for some reason, all my Twitter feed wanted to do this weekend was talk about Ted Lasso in ways good and bad. Um, so we want to get into that. We want to get into some new superhero news, courtesy of our superhero uh, guiding force, Joanna. Um, and we're bringing back the Little Goldman Book Club this week for Power of the Dog, which is a novel by Thomas Savage and is being adapted into a movie by Jane Campion, which will be premiering at the Venice and Toronto and New York Film Festivals and uh, maybe also in Telluride, if Benedict Cumberbatch is to be believed. Um, David interviewed Jane Campion for the site, so he's seen the movie, the rest of us haven't, uh, but we read the book and we want to talk about it. Um, but first, I did want to get into the Ted Lasso conversation conversation that's on Twitter, because I, I think it's interesting to look at a backlash that I think a lot of people predicted when the first season of Ted Lasso was just this runaway hit, just because that's what happens if you're on top of the world. Everyone's kind of like lining up to be like, well, actually, I didn't think it was that great. Um, and it's happening in the middle of Emmy voting for the first season, which is, I think is an interesting wrinkle. You know, you think of like when Shit's Creek was doing its huge Emmy run, like it had already wrapped up. It was like kind of got to just like sit in Valhalla. It didn't have to like carry on the story at that point. Do you guys think that there's anything in a bunch of Twitter people scolding Ted Lasso for being too nice that's going to affect the Emmy vote? I tend to think not, but then also like everyone's always looking for a narrative to shake up an award season and maybe someone will pay attention to it. What do you guys think that? I don't think that's quite the narrative. I mean, you know, not all Twitter feeds are equal, but that's just not quite (laughs) exactly the narrative I was seeing around the Ted Lasso discussion. I mean, I do think it's very interesting timing. Um, And, you know, my award season paranoia spidey sense is always like, is this some sort of (laughs) stealth campaign (laughs) from another uh, comedy? But um, I think there's a lot of things at play here. It's not just that, like, quote unquote, Ted Lasso is too nice because um, it's not always all that nice. But I think the main critique I was seeing was about season two and it Mm -hmm. was about how they felt like season two was a big drop off from season one. And 
Listen, I always get really scared for shows that have really intensive reactions to the first season. I It's usually not a great uh, trajectory for a show. And I will say, um, and, and you know, let me preface by saying I am a Ted Lasso fan. I like Ted Lasso a lot. I like the second season a lot. Um, when I started the second season screeners, I was a little worried because I was like, this, this feels a little self-aware, feels a little too aware of some of its, like some of the things that people love about it. The quips were just like, flying a little too fast and furious for me that I was just like, what is happening here? And then towards the end of the screener batch that we got um, initially, which um, audiences haven't seen that last episode yet, something happened that made me really get very interested in what the season was doing. And then I've since seen two more episodes that make me even more interested in what the season is doing. And so I really think part of this is a function of a lot of people watch season one of Ted Lasso in a binge dump because they Mm -hmm. had heard the word of mouth excitement about it. And now they're having to watch it week to week. And it's a different experience watching the story roll out that way. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think People have their their muscles for how to watch television um, have have atrophied a little bit. That being said, uh, it's also okay to not like Ted Lasso. I just want to make sure that <laughs> like people know that it's okay. It's an enormously popular show. It doesn't need everyone to like it. Um, you know, one thing that I think is so interesting slash frustrating about this whole recent Twitter dialogue about the show is that we don't really know where the overlap is between people talking about on Twitter and the larger viewership because we don't have any viewership numbers really. Mm -hmm. Completely. And so it's like, how popular is this show? Is this one of those things that's really only popular sort of in these media bubbles that coincide sometimes with awards voting bodies, you know, like, is this an industry show or is this a more widely popular show? I really have no idea. Um, But it's interesting to watch in kind of really record time, a show entrench with a really like rabid kind of parks and rec aggressive perkiness fan base um, that they've, that they've formed that in just, you know, one season really um, I think is a testament to maybe how hungry people were for something that felt nice. Yeah. I would say anecdotally, like my family watches it and they don't like my dad doesn't watch anything and he watches Ted Lasso. (laughs) So I do think there is some bleed out into the wider world. I was the same thing. And yeah, anecdotally, the people I know who don't watch television were watching Mayor of Easttown and Ted Lasso. (laughs) Like everyone I know is watching Mayor of Easttown and Ted Lasso, but they don't watch other things. And so to me, that feels like. Do you guys now just want a crossover episode with Mare and Ted Lasso, like, in a room together? Like, she would just, like, eat him for lunch, I think. I'd love it. That'd be great. <laughs> no more need for Sarah Niles. Well, because she would find the, the young women he has hidden in his house, <laughs> which I'm sure is the big that's season the, two twist. Well, that's the twist Joanna's alluding to. I'm really yeah. upset that you um, that you revealed that. <laughs> I do think, I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to be, like, some sort of blinkered champion from Ted Lasso, which, once again, does not need my help, but is doing perfectly fine. But, like, I do think there's a lot of darkness in the show and like the fact that like there is this sort of cheery Pollyannish figure at the center of it is something the show is really interested in exploring the cracks in in the second season and I know that their plan is to only do three season and it's something that they've like planned from the start so this really is like a planned arc we're seeing um so I don't know I I would counsel patience but I also just don't know to to Richard's point about how real is this I don't know how real the backlash is because that feels really 
tiny, honestly, to me. Well, you and know also I mean? part of the backlash was a really thoughtful, I thought, really balanced review from Dorian St. Felix the New Yorker, you know, that was sort of yeah. like labeled as like some like hit piece on the show. And it's not. It's just kind of addressing its role or like its place in like the cultural dialogue at the moment in, a, in I thought, a fair way. Um, so, yeah, I think backlash is maybe a strong word. I mean, obviously, there are people who don't like it and people like myself who like it a lot less after sort of witnessing the fan barrage. It has nothing to do with the actual content of the show. It's the way the show is spoken about um, that I really kind of alienates me from it. And I think marketed, too. I mean, I've seen a few people point out on Twitter that, you know, the way that image of its star and its character kind of started overlapping and the way it was promoted and pushed uh, did alienate some people. Um, but to your original question, Katie, I mean, this is the only comedy series nominee we are talking about. So I think, to be honest, <laughs> I, I think it only helps it in a way because it's just like, is no one's talking about hacks anymore, which was probably the show. I'm that still got talking to, about hacks. Well, <laughs> I loved hacks, but in terms of, you know, cultural conversation, um, I think a general quiet phase two that we've been talking about, um, Ted Lasso has kind of been able to transcend that a little bit because it's airing and because people are having reactions to it both uh, strongly on both sides. Yeah. I mean, it's the homecoming queen. So it's like something that everyone's going to talk about, but like no one wants it to be out of the spotlight because it is the thing that everybody wants to talk about. I feel like like a couple uh, to David's great point. I think that that echoes something you and I talked about last week, Kitty, about um, White Lotus's chance next year. And I'm like, maybe if season two is airing during mm-hmm. uh, voting, you know, it has a better chance of people remembering season one. But also, I think that even with Shit's Creek, like, I feel like when something is so heavily nominated, when something wins so much as Shit Creek, Shit's Creek did last year, I remember some Shit's Creek backlash. You know what I mean? Like, I remember it. It's like, if something becomes too popular, people... Backlash, I agree, Richard. That's probably not the, the right word. I am, but, like, some some grumbling and some expression of like, is this all there is or et cetera, et cetera, or this is not my taste or whatever it is. And I think all of that is fine and healthy, honestly. Yeah. And it probably only encourages the true believers to run to their Emmy ballots and defend, you yeah. know, there's nothing that makes you more eager to support something than feeling it's in danger. So. Yeah, I think it's just really like, you know, I'm seeing a lot of the let people enjoy things. And it's like, well, let people also not enjoy things. Exactly. Like, exactly. And don't be like, it's a nice show, you asshole. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot of the sort of pushback in favor of the show is sort of missing the point of the actual show. Richard, you reserve the right to be the Trent Krim and sit uh, with a slightly skeptical look on your face in the background. And I think that is just fine. Let people enjoy things. And if one thing they enjoy is critiquing something, let people critique things. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> It's just a show. Um, well, back to what my Twitter feed is talking about, because that is the topic of this show every week. Um, but I did uh, I did have a lot of fun kind of seeing the leak of the Spider-Man trailer, which I didn't watch, and then the release of the Spider-Man trailer, and kind of a, a burst of joy that came up when the uh, trailer for, oh my God, Spider-Man No Way Home? Is that what it's called? No yeah. Direction Home? You no, that's it. a Bob Dylan movie. You nailed it. Um, there's a new Spider-Man movie. Uh, Doc Ock is in it. Love Alfred Molina. Couldn't be happier to see Alfred Molina. Um... Joanna, what's the uh, what's the hype about Spider Man? Why do we? Uh, why should even the Marvel possibly skeptic among us like me, or at least Marvel neutral like me, uh, be into this? <laughs> well, am I allowed to say that I watched the, the leaked 
trailer of the weekend. And can I just oh. say that it was like shot from someone's iPhone on someone's, it's like the worst that viewing sucks. experience uh, anyone's <laughs> ever had. And I was glad that they released uh, the full version rather quickly so people could just watch that. Um, and I think just the ambition of it in terms of, we talk about this a lot when we talk about Marvel, Richard and I have talked about this on our other podcast, still watching this idea that Marvel has of like, this is a Marvel Sony co-pro, but this idea that Marvel likes to espouse, which is like, whatever missteps you've seen from us in the past, we're going to fix it somehow, or we're going to make it whole, or we're going to bring it under the umbrella of what we're currently doing. So it all feels like a cohesive whole. And that's a lot of what we're seeing in the Spider-Man No Way Home uh, trailer. You're seeing the inclusion, not just of Alfred Molina as Doc Off, but Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin. Um, you just hear his voice, right? Yeah. Jamie Foxx's Electro is going to be in it. Like all, you know, and so the, and we're pretty, we're sh pretty sure as better to Cumberbatch is that his film is playing a Telluride. Um, I would say we're pretty sure that, possibly Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to show up, you know? So it's going to be like a big, like everyone under the same tent. There were no mistakes, no missteps in the Spider-Man franchise. This is a cohesive whole. And that I find extremely fascinating, honestly. So we should say, Brendan that Cumberbatch has not told us that Andrew Garfield is going to be in this. <laughs> uh, not on the record. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, he's, he's not said that. He's very, he's very good at his keeping his secrets. But obviously, Benedict Cumberbatch is heavily uh, in. I saw a great tweet this morning uh, that was like, "Is Tom Holland allowed to be in a Spider-Man without an actor who played Sherlock Holmes as his co-star?" Um, <laughs> so now that Downey's out of the franchise, uh, the adult supervision in the Spider-Man film is Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, as Doctor Stephen Strange. So I mean, you know. I think as much as people really enjoyed um, the energy of Into the Spider-Verse, the Sony animated film, um, I, I think this is a similar, this is a very, 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 very similar vibe of like Spider-Men, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and there's a nostalgia play there too, of course, like, you know, for people who loved Alfred Molina's Doc Ock, like that, that Spider-Man is, hel is held up as one of the best superhero films of all time. And the fact that we're going back to that is, is really interesting. So I don't know. Those are my spider takes. It did make me want to revisit the video of him uh, practicing uh, Fiddler on the Roof in his Doc Ock costume. Yes. That's like from behind the scenes of Spider-Man 2. We we've all seen this, right? With his claws snapping. Yeah. He's yeah. like singing If I Were a Rich Man with a... It's pretty great. <laughs> with his metal <laughs> octopus claws. Is the fourth one just going to be called Spider-Man No Homo? <laughs> That's what they've been building up to this whole yeah. time. It's just a long extended no homo joke. <laughs> um, well, while we're in Marvel land, uh, Shang-Chi and the ten, is ten Rings? Ten, ten Rings. rings. I keep wanting it to be Seven Rings, rings yeah. which I think is just me thinking of the Ariana Grande song. That's my problem. Uh, Shang-Chi is coming out. It is not going to be available to watch at home, which is mm -hmm. interesting for all kinds of reasons. Um, but may, probably not as interesting as the film itself. It's introducing a big new character. It's introducing a big new star. Um, I have not seen it. So I'm going to throw it over to the people who have. How's Shang-Chi? I liked it. I think it's like, um, I mean, I, okay. I liked the first half of it. I think it's, you know, Destin Daniel Cretton, who we've seen do a kind of a variety of things, but here gets to go big in a sort of action spectacular. And I think mostly succeeds again for that first half. It's the Marvel universe introducing like extended martial arts fights that are really well choreographed and really kind of like you feel the the crunches, you know, and the cast is lively. The world is kind of fun. And then I think it eventually, as all things might do, might just be the entropy of everything. It just kind of becomes a big kind of bloated, you know, spectacular thing that uh, you kind of lose the 
the texture and the originality, even though they're really trying very hard to, you know, include all these sort of, you know, Chinese myths and all this kind of mythological illusions and all these things that are expanding the Marvel Universe, it oddly feels like the movie actually kind of contracts into something we've seen before. Yeah, I I completely loved it. And I went in with like, uh, not tremendously high expectations, just because I just like, it's been hard to get a grasp of like, what's happening with Marvel, I think partially because they um, have really leaned into the secrecy vibe even more so than ever before. And so in their marketing for their films, they're trying to hide a lot. Uh, and then that makes it hard to under, like get a sense of what the film is, if that makes any sense. But I agree mostly with Richard, but I would push my percentage of enjoyment to like 85% of the movie. You know, it's just like really just until the like end when like the CG gets a little overwhelming that I was like, did we, we were doing so well. Did we need to go here, et cetera. <laughs> um, that being said, like even that final battle, which you know is always coming in a Marvel movie is not since I think Winter Soldier have I felt that it's so anchored in character. Um, there's tremendous amount of character work in this film, a really, really good emotional character core. Um, not just with like, it's Simu Liu, it's Aquafina who plays, you know, his friend from high school, uh, you know, and then there's just like a lot of family stuff and Tony Leung who plays, you know, the heavy in the film is his father. So there's a, little, a lot of juicy Star Wars-y stuff in there. And it's, it's, um, it's really fun, but, but the action it, is just beautiful. There is like an opening towards the beginning. There's a sequence that will give you all of those like delicious house of flying daggers, hero, uh, crouching tiger, hidden dragon feelings um, that you were like, Oh, I get this in a Marvel movie. Like I didn't know that was allowed. Um, and it is so, so beautiful. So, and it's really fun and funny um, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it so much. And I'm really hoping that it doesn't suffer from this, like, where it's coming in, in the pandemic. I obviously, I want everyone to be safe. I don't want anyone to go to the theater if they don't feel safe. Um, but there's obviously been a lot of conversation about the release plan for this film. The lead actress, Amy Liu, took to Twitter to be, like, after, you know, Disney's CEO called it sort of an experiment, I believe is the word he used, which is understandable as a word because they're all trying to figure out what works. I can understand why their lead actor had a negative reaction to his film being called an experiment, especially when we're talking about matters of representation. And so it's a... Uh, yeah, but he was saying that the release strategy was an experiment, not that the, the making the movie was. Of course, of course. You know. But it's like what films are released as an... Ex like, unfortunately, during the pandemic the two films that are going to be released, you know, under all of this is like a female led film and a non white guy led film. And that's like a rarity thus far in Marvel's long history. And it feels like, you know, they're yeah. treating them like they're beastering, which they're not, but it, I can understand how it would feel that way. Does that make sense? And like even Kevin Feige in, a, in an attempt to sort of like put out the fire of this conversation called Shang-Chi a pandemic hero, which I don't, I don't even know what that means. So yeah, that was weird. You know, I was just like, I don't, I don't know what this means. So well, he's probably referring to that 30 minute segment in the middle where he just gives COVID tests. <laughs> I think, well, really. well, Dr. Fauci makes a cameo in uh, the middle Aquafina of it. Right? tries to spice it up, but it's like kind of just dull, but, <laughs> but I, I, I just think it's a tremendous movie and I'm excited for people to see it however they feel safe to see it. No. And I hope that, you know, you look at something like Free Guy, which only went to theaters and is doing well compared to stuff that's done the bifurcated release. Like, I hope that the theaters only benefits Shang-Chi, you know, because 
I know that people are justifiably nervous about things. And so people should, you know, do what they, you know, feel is best for them. But like, in terms of a financial incentive, like you actually have like reportable numbers and like something concrete to look at versus that vague wondering, well, how did Black Widow do? How did Mulan do? How did, you know, et cetera, et cetera, do? Um, and we'll have that kind of questioning going forward into the fall with HBO Max stuff. So I kind of appreciate at least that like Shang-Chi is getting like the traditional theatrical, like go out and see it release. One last question is that I feel like Simu Liu has been really poised for a breakout with this. And then Kim's Convenience kind of had this big surge of popularity um, before, you know, kind of the controversial end of it. Do we feel like he's uh, really poised as a rising star in this? I thought he was great. I thought he was wonderful in this. Yeah, they cast well, you know, yeah. like they figured out, like, I think everyone fits and manages the kind of comedic tone. There's a f- funny kind of running gag with the two leads about I don't want to say, but like, you know, they just, it, it has that, they, they balance the tone well um, and everyone's good. And I, what I do like about the movie also is that I know it's going to fit in into the broader Marvel thing, but it really does feel like a standalone sort of thing. It's not just like trying to like make these characters work in relation to the other people that we know and love or whatever. It's like, no, they're their own distinct thing. And here's, you know, two hours of them. And I think that um, it was really smart to pack sort of, it seems like they're packaging, Simu Liu and Aquafina is like a package deal, like both it, throughout the movie. Like he benefits from bouncing off of Aquafina for the whole movie. And it seems like whatever, wherever they're going next, they're going together. And that I think is a really good pairing. You know what I mean? Cause like it, she is just like so much charisma, just like, you know, oozing out of every pore and like, you know, how, how can that not be something you want to watch? You know? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Um, well, we talked about Benedict Cumberbatch earlier as part of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, and he so he's going to be in the Spider-Man movie. He's got another movie uh, playing the festival circuit called The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne, but I think if this is going to be the year of Cumberbatch, which I'm kind of starting to think it will be, it's going to be because of Power of the Dog. And I think the world got a sense of that, David, when you published your uh, preview piece about Power of the Dog on VF.com this week, as you were saying, the uh, Cumberbatch Hive was all over your Twitter mentions. Um, <laughs> you got to talk to Jane Campion, you talked to Ben at Cumberbatch, you you saw the movie, you got to share some images from it. And, um, you know, the character that he's playing in, in Power of the Dog is so central to the novel that we wanted to talk about. And it's such a fascinating character, not only to bring on screen, but for him to play in particular. Um, and so just... I don't want you to talk too much about having seen the movie, but I feel very hyped for it. And it seems like my hype is justified. Uh, would you agree with that? I, I feel like my reaction is completely embargoed, but um, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's Jane Campion making a movie for the first time in over 10 years with, I think we could all agree, a really fascinating uh, thorny novel um, and really strong characters, a really great cast. And I think you... Can you know you can you can glean from that that it does you know they they do what they um, you would hope they would do. <laughs> How powerful is this dog? Uh, all powerful, really. <laughs> well, yeah. So I got I read this book kind of having uh, you know knowing you were working on this review piece, David, and obviously being really interested in anything Jane Campion was going to go do. And you know, it's a novel that's been around for a long time. It is celebrated enough that uh, Annie Prue kind of wrote wrote the afterward for a new version of it published in. 2001 or so sometime yeah, around that period um you know after she had written Brokeback Mountain but before the movie came out and kind of made her iconic actually is this the first time you've been back on the show since we talked about Brokeback Mountain it all feels very thematically uh, I, I <laughs> couldn't tell you but this is clearly clearly how it was meant to be yeah Stephen and I had a lovely chat with Chris Murphy when you were gone Katie about Ted Lasso oh. season two. <laughs> oh my god yeah we would just bring you back for the same themes over and over again <laughs> Um, but so let's talk about the book. It's, you know, it's written by Thomas Savage. It was published in the late sixties. Um, I had never heard of it before going into this process. Um, and David, you spoke to a Thomas Savage scholar and I think I got a lot of, got a lot sense of his legacy as an author. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about him and this book? Sure. So Thomas Savage, um, as you mentioned, Katie, this book came out uh, in the 60s, was republished and had a kind of renaissance in some literary circles in 2001. Um, he was a closeted gay man. He had an affair, the scholar told me, and I'm sure is in his biography with a noted children's book author. I didn't get the name. Well, <laughs> yes. Blind um, item. And he, he grew up in a, a ranching Montana community, which is where this book is set. And, and the book is all of his books, from what uh, the scholar told me, are, are somewhat autobiographical. And this one, I think he has more autobiographical novels than this one. He has less. This is kind of in the middle. Um, but it's set at this ranch. The character that Cumberbatch is playing in the film, his name is Phil Burbank. He's this kind of like uber-masculine, very smart, very quick-witted, kind of wily uh, rancher type um, who has some secrets, as we learn over the course of the novel. And he is modeled, I believe, after an uncle or someone in, in Savage's family. Stepfather. I Stepfather, think. yes. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. Um, and and he's, he's a character who, you know, it's, it was interesting because I read the book after I saw the film. And I think because of that, I was like, oh, my God, this is like, this is a Benedict Cumberbatch role, you know, this is made for him. But I don't <laughs> think I would have had that reaction if it were the other way around because... It's the kind of role that feels like a big departure for him. 
In what way? Because I, I, I had the same reaction, having not seen the movie, kind of having his picture in my brain. And I did think about like kind of the jerkier sides of his Sherlock and how they fit into that. But I guess hmm. like, you know, British aristocratic actor, Montana rancher don't necessarily go hand in hand. Well, I think be, the, the main thing is that Phil is such uh, a man of this, you know, milieu, this world. He mm-hmm. is uh, the great the greatest braider and rancher and he he understands this world so intimately and he's such a sort of icon of american west masculinity that is that is his role in the novel that is his place that is what is deconstructed and in the over the course of the book um obviously you see new depths and um, maybe contradictions to that image but i think for me seeing cumberbatch in that kind of role having seen the film made a lot of sense to me because as you said, Katie, he does have those kinds of personality quirks that match with Phil, but obviously being this sort of very, very British actor, um, fitting into a role that is so, I think, deeply American in a lot of ways, um, Mm -hmm. is, is, is a different kind of thing for him. And he really, I did speak to him about the role and he really embraced that. He went to Montana multiple times. He, um, he really embraced, completely immersing himself in this man's psyche and in his world. So Joanna, did you have any knowledge or history with this book before we embarked on this book club? Zero. In fact, you're like, do you want to read this book? I was like, sure. And then I'm so glad you put the author name because there's two books uh, with this title. And <laughs> I, don't yeah, go I for the that. Don Don Winslow. Don't <laughs> I, go. I easily could have picked up the wrong one. Uh, no, zero, zero knowledge, zero knowledge of this author before I read it. And um, yeah, I, I loved it. Can I give like a, just a, vague sketch of what the plot yes, is. Yes, of course. We've like not done our, our quick plot description. Major spoilers. So yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch, as you guys have been uh, saying, is is the lead. Uh, Phil, Phil Burbank, he's got a brother, George, played by Jesse Plemons. Um, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm just saying actor and insert actor names, right? Um, <laughs> and then uh, at a certain point, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, that like uh, George marries um, an attractive widow, uh, who Rosie, who would play by Kirsten Dunst. Um, and she has a son, Peter, uh, played by Cody Smith McPhee. And all of these personalities will be clashing on a ranch. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, Phil, like, let's just say that like Phil, like Phil and George are the kind of brother. Phil is smart. George is, uh, plotting. I think is the word that yes. is used for him. Uh, <laughs> Phil is mean. <laughs> George is nice. Um, and, but they've lived their lives together on on this ranch, they had folks who have left, have since retired yep. elsewhere. But they, they like what, the old gent and the and the lady, yeah, or they have these like really funny, funny formal names for them. Yeah, but they uh, th- these these fellas uh, and Phil's forty um, have been sleeping in the same room like their entire lives. They still sleep in their childhood bedroom together, so they have this whole life. And George goes and quote unquote ruins it all by marrying a woman and bringing her to the ranch and stuff like that. And so Phil's mad and. That's how things progress from there. Um, yeah. Phil, Phil was already mean. He just gets meaner. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so you have all of that. You've got, you know, beautiful long descriptions of the ranch, of, of activity on the ranch, of um, all the other figures that like sort of bounce around the ranch and around the town and stuff like that. It's set, it's written in, as you said, the late 60s, set in the 1920s. And it's a world that I don't know anything about. Um, but it's one of those books where you get sort of engrossed in the details of like, yeah. uh, something that you have no firsthand experience. How to braid a rope. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> there are, we're going to be careful about how we talk about this plot because there are things that people like would consider 
mysteries or twists or whatever. And like, sure. I, I would say from my point of view, I, I didn't see this as very twisty or mystery related, but it didn't, that, that being said, like I had such a good time reading it. Um, and it's not a book I think I would have picked up were it not for the urging of this, of this book club. So I'm really glad that I read it. Yeah. And how fascinating that Campion even sought it out. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a well-known book. And even now, I think it's it's admired in very particular literary circles, but it's one that you really do have to kind of <laughs> you have to find it. And um, but yeah, I completely agree with you, Joanna. It's it's it d- didn't read to me like a big twisty book. The last sentence is kind of delicious and had me like flipping the pages back. Like, wait, what? The back uh, of the book jacket says like down to the last word, and I was like, what's the last <laughs> word going to be? And it it really did uh, satisfy. Yes, um, but but my favorite part of the whole book the reading experience was, did you guys read the, the afterward? Yeah. Yeah. Annie calling Phil a vicious bitch is <laughs> everything to me. I know. Puts, puts a new spin on the Cumberbitch, uh, uh, the old Cumberbitch <laughs> twist. Yeah. No. And it's, it's interesting because, um, I loved your piece, uh, that you did David. And, and one of the okay. interesting, uh, things that popped out of it, um, that you highlighted is this idea that Jane Campion has never done a film with a male lead. And I was like, I was like, okay, let me interrogate this for a second. And I was like, well, bright star ish. Like it's a co-lead Abby Cornish, I guess is the lead of that film. Um, and then I was like, yeah. And top of the lake, it makes sense to me that she's doing this because, and she explains to you some of the reasons why, but like the top of the lake is so interested in toxic masculinity. A lot of yep. her stuff is interested in toxic masculinity and how it impacts women. And so this is just her sort of, you know, snuggling up even a little one layer closer to the toxicity itself. Um, and yeah, it's like toxic masculinity and how it hurts the person who it lives within. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's fascinating. Exactly that the way you see this as a, it's a complete, God, what can I say? <laughs> I, just, I, don't, I don't want to get. I don't want Netflix to get mad at me. But you know, it, it, Jane Campion is still making a Jane Campion movie, and um, there's obviously more overlap there than one might expect. With this being a kind of you know milestone for her in that sense, in the very um, definitional sense of having made a movie about a man for the first time, um, and and really working from a book, I think that you know you you read it and you you see the way she's going to depict these incredible images that Savage writes about these landscapes, um, because of course she is such a stunning visual filmmaker and always has been. So um, there's also that element of just like, uh, you can't wait to see how she creates this world. Yeah. I'm really fascinated about how she captures the interiority of the book because so much of it is happening in Phil's head. And like that ending that we're talking about is all kind of happening, like within the heads of the people and like Phil, what is so fascinating about his character a lot comes with like kind of the twisted logic that exists within his brain where he's like, well, this happened and therefore I should do this to this person. And like no one around him can really figure out why he's thinking it, but because you're in his head, you kind of like see how his mind has been warped by these like masculine ideals that he's trying to adhere to. And I think there are lots of cinematic ways to depict that, but you know, we've all seen uh, adaptations of books that just like do endless expositional like voiceover and stuff like that. And I'm really intrigued to see how you take a character who exists so fully in his head on the page and depict him. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's one of the great challenges of the book. And it's also something that she has a unique ability, I think, just as a general filmmaker, not with this particular film, um, to capture just because I always I always think of The Piano because it's one of my favorite movies ever. But, um, you know, 
she of course made a movie there about a mute woman and, um, you know, injected just so much complex humanity into her over the course of that film. Well, I was also thinking about Brokeback Mountain and, you know, Annie um, Prue writes the afterward for very good reason and how little dialogue is in that movie, especially in the parts where you're watching Mm. this love story unfold and how you can just, you can use the scenery of of the West to depict a lot of feelings uh, if you know how to use your camera. (laughs) Um, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my understanding of the trajectory of this book is that it's like, it was kind of this... I mean, it's way ahead of his time for a 1967 novel, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was like a forgotten novel and a forgotten author in a lot of ways. And then Annie Prue in 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 like in this reissue with her afterward um, and its connection to like her work and stuff like that uh, gave it a little bit of a renaissance. Like that, that's sort of what happened there, right? Is yeah, right? yeah. And the rights got tied up with. I don't know the you know the details, but I was told that the rights got caught up with a bunch of different filmmakers and production companies, and I think that there was a lot of there was a lot of interest in the story once yeah, Annie Pru wrote that afterward um, in in what it could be as a film. Um, it didn't get very far ever, but it did kind of circle Hollywood for about two decades before Jane Campion uh, snatched it up. And I, I think one of the reasons why it had that renaissance. Um, because of course, you know, Brokeback Mountain, the movie was not out at the time that this reissue came out, um, was because it, it does deconstruct West masculinity, um, in a way that I don't think people had encountered in American literature very often, at least on a scale that got this kind of attention. Mm -hmm. Um, and the book definitely was reissued by Little Brown. Um, so it got a significant push. And, and I think that there was a lot of focus around that time on, on, exactly what made the book kind of groundbreaking and unique. I listened to the audiobook and in, in, in sort of in conjunction with it. That's what, that's what I often have to do with these book clubs we do because I don't have time. I run out of time and I'm like, oh, well, gotta, gonna <laughs> have to listen. Um, but Annie Prue reads the afterword in the audio. Oh, wow. It's her herself. And there's a section where she talks about Jane's approach. So it's, I guess it's like an updated afterword where she talks about oh, cool. like oh, talking wow. with Jane and stuff like that. And she talks about... You know, there's some there's some stuff that we don't want to talk about, but she talks about how she like she's like, and I imagine Jane Campion focusing on rustling willow leaves. <laughs> Whoa! Like, it was just it was really interesting. I thought that was I would really be fun. fascinated to know if that's actually in the movie. <laughs> like, yeah. She saw it and doesn't want to give it away. <laughs> but um, no comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm really excited. I mean, like you 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 as you said, like she's such a visual and such like a landscape um, director. Like I mentioned top of the lake, which I think has some of the most beautiful shots of nature in it. Um, And also uh, bright star, which is my favorite Jane Campion, which is just like beautiful fields and bugs (laughs) and stuff like that. And I just like, I just think that um, I'm excited for how gorgeous it's going to be. Katie, I'm I'm curious. Can I ask you, um, you, off air, uh, elsewhere in a conversation, you called this, um, and not in a dismissive way, in a positive way, another neo-Western directed by a woman. Hmm. So I'm wondering, like, do hmm. you see this as its own, like, what do you consider to be a neo-Western and, and, and like, what else 
I know what else fits in the genre, but what do you see fits in that genre? Oh no, I'm I'm w- like waiting for my westerns professor from college to listen to this. And no, be like you know nothing <laughs> of my work. Um, well, no, I was comparing it to Nomadland in terms of Oscar acceptance, and I think it's a really interesting question. Is like I, I think this is going into award season as a really major player, and Jane Campion is a really major director, but. A year after Nomadland wins Best Picture, like, are we going to be like, okay, another uh, female director taking on the kind of the myth of the West in this way? Um, I don't, I I don't imagine Power of the Dog being that thematically similar to Nomadland. Nomadland's about a woman. It's set in the present day. There's all these other elements to it. But I think about kind of the second to last shot of Nomadland and how it directly references the searchers and kind of puts Francis McDormand's fern in the legacy of people in the West kind of searching for home and stability and society. And sometimes they accept it and sometimes they reject it. And I think there's a lot of elements of that in Power of the Dog. And like Power of the Dog is the people who like live within a very set structure like that. But it's also in the 20s. So modernity is coming into play. You've got the character Peter that Cody Smith is playing who kind of represents a vision of another way of living and he is so fully rejected by where he is and that's part of what kind of repulses uh, Phil about him. Um, so just the idea of a Western that kind of takes the existing like white hat, black hat society, woman who will, will redeem you and messes with it. Um, and there's uh, so many movies that do that and I think Power of the Dog has p- potential to do that in a lot of ways. And I hope people who vote on awards aren't like, well, we gave it to Nomadland so we can't give it to Power of the Dog. Um, and obviously it's very early for that conversation but I do think they'll be very interesting to look at side by side. This is such a fascinating question and it's one I've been thinking about a lot in the context of this movie because I, I think it has, you know, compared to Nomadland and, it, you know, in the context of awards and the context of the merits of the film, of which I have no comment. Um, but, <laughs> but, but it, you know, it, it has things I think that work for and against it. You know, the story is a lot darker than Nomadland. I mm-hmm. think it's safe to say the ending is a bit bleaker than Nomadland. And we know, you know, I think that there are sometimes some cliches about Oscar voters and how you know, weird or dark they're willing to get. I think we've learned that especially over the past few years. But, you know, this is not, this is not the sort of elegiac, um, emotional tour uh, through a post-recession America that Nomadland was. It's, it's, it's a movie that can be quite tough. And it's a story, it's a, it's a book that can be quite tough, I should say, yeah. and quite unrelenting. Um, but it also has this sweep and this sense of, you know, it has a scope um, that extends a bit beyond Nomadlands, I think, in terms of, you know, just the, the making of the movie, which we can talk about. It took, they filmed it over seven months. Campion uh, took her cast and crew to New Zealand where they had, you know, where they were in these incredibly beautiful remote locations. You know, it has, um, in the vein of Brokeback Mountain, the makings, the structures of the kind of movie that we would think of as more typically um, Oscar-y, just in terms of having that sweep. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you saw the, think of the ending as bleak because, like, it is kind of bleak, but I think of it as kind of a hopeful ending too. Well, no, I, I do too, but it's it's a complicated ending. It's it's really it's not, complicated. It's an ending yeah. that you really have to think about, and I, I think I thought about it even more. And I'm not saying the film's ending, of course, is the same as the books, but um, they both have. It's safe to say endings worth thinking about. And I thought about it completely anew after reading the book because yeah, interesting. It's just even just reading something versus seeing it, you get a completely different perspective on it. Yeah. I will say Nomadland, I think also has a somewhat complicated ending, but I think sure. a, certainly a hopeful one, not unambiguously hopeful, but like it, it sends you out on that note for sure. Is the idea of a neo-Western, cause I was just like, uh, 
forgive me, I was just Googling neo-Western. Is the idea of neo-Western usually that it, because when you said nomad land, that's actually not what I was expecting you to say. I thought you were going to say first cow. Um, so oh. like <laughs> first so, cow, uh, beloved, this had Oscar buzz hopeful. <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> when you say neo-Western, is it usually in a modern setting? Like, is that usually what neo-Western not is? Not necessarily. Like, I think like when I was in college and taking a class on Westerns, like the outlaw Josie Wales was kind of used as an idea of a mm-hmm. Western, like kind of questions the, the tropes of a Western. So like, interrogates. Yeah. Western, kind of. Okay. Cause like there aren't there. I mean, honestly, there aren't that many like straightforward West, like stagecoach kind of being the emblematic one. There are some of them otherwise, but I think a lot of them like take the idea of morality and, and muddy it up, which is where the West is really useful for that. Cause you have like kind of, elemental forces coming up against each other. Like high noon is it's kind of a revisionist Western, even though it's also an iconic Western. Mm. Um, but just, yeah, the idea of like kind of taking the specific tropes of the genre and, and tweaking them or examining them in a new light is roughly how I'm imagining it. If you are a scholar of Westerns, please write in. <laughs> no, no, no. And correct me. <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out at all. I was, no, just, no. I was just really intrigued when you used that phrase and I hadn't heard it because I did not take a Western a course in college. Yeah. Well, I love Westerns and I love thinking and talking about them. So hopefully it's helping some people. In terms of Oscar, you would look at something like No Country for Old Men in that context, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. being, a th- yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, w- I don't know if I would really call Nomadland a Western. I don't know if Chloe Zhao would, but um, yeah, No Country for Old Men certainly being a very specifically Western that actually won Best Picture. Any final thoughts on Power of the Dog? We want people to read it. Obviously, I got it from my local library. I don't think it's hard to find if you get the author name right. There, There's just, there's one scene. I mean, the movie has, you know, has talked about in the story. They have scenes that aren't in the book. Uh, they have scenes in the book that are not in the movie. So fine to say, but there was one scene in the book uh, that I just want to highlight that I think is so phenomenal. And it's Peter... He's on the ranch. He's arrived in Montana and he's walking uh, kind of across the ranch and he's wearing jeans. And Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. But it's such a pivotal moment, I think, for Phil and and for the arguments that the book is trying to make and and the sort of at times overwhelming emotional experience that it provides. Um, So look out for that scene um, because I think it's a really just amazing piece of writing. We're excited to see... um my favorite Hollywood couple, Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst together. <laughs> Iconic Hollywood couple. I just want to, I just want to say uh, one other thing more looking toward the future. I also this year read Killers of the Flower Moon, knowing that the uh, Martin Scorsese adaptation is coming in Apple. Uh, and Jesse Plemons is also in it. And it's also a Western in some ways. It's set in Oklahoma, uh, I guess, in a similar time period to when Power of the Dog is set. And I just, so you're saying I'm excited it may for this. So be the year of Jesse Plemons. Well, it's yet another Oklahoma for, for Jesse Plumas. I don't know why that keeps happening. But uh, I mean, well, I don't think I don't think Killers of the Flower Moon will be out till next year. So we have um, we We've have much to look forward to. But yeah. I will just, I will just say, and this is something that I think we always say when we do these little book club segments on Little Gold Men. I think it's just always so fun to read the book. I know yes. David, yes. David. David is relatively like new to our pack, but he is a book guy. He I know he agrees with me. Like read oh the my book, hundred percent. Read the book. It's so much like you just get to luxuriate in so much more depth and and time thinking about it and all of that. Stuff. And like as a probably as a little tease for book club this season, there are so many fascinating books coming into award season this year. I mean. Passing and Dune are two completely different books, but <laughs> equally worth your time, and I think equally worth chewing on as we talk about the the films based on them in the coming yeah. months. I read Passing earlier this year. I had a really good time with it. I think oh my people God, it, really love it. It's kind yeah. of it's an it's a knockout, and yeah. I think um, well, we can I could say about Passing that yeah, Rebecca we'll, we'll Hall be back for Passing. Beautifully interprets it. So. Passing, I feel much more confident that I can read 
uh, and much more so than Dune. So my, my personal challenge is well, to actually yeah, just, read Dune. Just in terms of length, yes. I yeah. <laughs> Passing's a very short read. Dune is an investment. So there you go. Well, stay tuned for more book club installments. We'll see how I do. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Now we're going to share the two interviews we have for this week's episode. Uh, first, you'll hear from our colleague, Hilary Busis, who got on the line with Maya Rudolph, who's nominated this year for playing Kamala Harris on Saturday Night Live, as well as her voice work on Big Mouth. Um, and I don't know, any chance to catch up with Maya Rudolph is kind of a joy. And she talked about like bringing her kids onto the set on SNL and also how they're not going to watch Big Mouth, which I, I think I understand. Um, so let's listen to that interview. Maya Rudolph, thank you so much for coming on Vanity Fair's Little Gold Band podcast. Um, you were nominated for three Emmys last year and uh, won two of them. And this year you're nominated again in the same two categories. Um, last year was a strange year in a lot of ways. Um, could you still kind of celebrate your achievement, even though, you know, the ceremony was virtual and, uh, you know, the everything wasn't the same as it, there wasn't as much pop and circumstance, I guess, around the Emmys as there usually are, even the creative arts ceremony? It felt like a nice thing to get to celebrate. I definitely felt like it was nice to stop and think about personal achievement and, you know, these things that we put all our time and effort and hard work into being received and people taking the time to acknowledge it feels really nice. And so it's good to sort of take a moment and pause and say, thank you. And it's great. Um, and yeah, I got to, it felt very sweet because I got to celebrate it, you know, just with the people that I love and people around me. So that was really nice. And I mean, sometimes when you don't have to get dressed up, it's not the worst thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you saw at the primetime Emmys last year where Jason Sudeikis is uh, tie-dyed sweatshirt, yeah. which I think kind of broke the internet I mean, a little bit. I think bit. that sums it up. You know, he doesn't wear as many Spanx as I do, but I think that after a while you reach Spanx fatigue and it's nice to not have to wear them. And, you know, I stopped wearing heels a long time ago because I just, I, I, it's impossible to walk. I can't do it anymore. Um and so it's nice to kind of get a break from all that and then just focus on what you're all there for, which is to honor and appreciate. Yeah, for sure. Um, and this year, again, you've got two nominations uh, for Big Mouth and for SNL, two great performances. How did you feel to hear this year that you were nominated again twice? Really genuinely pleased and appreciative. Um it was really such a shock last year to win something that I think that really wasn't on my radar at all. So now it's sort of like you're trying not to think about an elephant, but you're like, oh, there's Emmys coming up. Is this going to, are you going to do this again? And it was sort of like, oh, I, oh, I am. Okay, great. You know, you don't get to choose. So I'm sort of like, you do want me to play on your team, on your softball team. Okay, cool. Um, is this your, you like me, you really like me moment? Uh, I think less of that and more just like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Cause I think, I think in terms of like feeling liked, I felt, I've definitely felt love 
more recently in my career and I, and, um, and, and it, and it does feel palpable. And so this felt like a nice reflection of that. Certainly not the expected outcome, but definitely a nice reflection of like, wow, that feels good to know that people think of me in that way. And it's all very, it's all very icing on the cake loveliness. Cause it's, you know, if I ever made it the end goal, I would, I would hate myself a lot think. I mean, generally speaking, when you were on SNL this season, um, it's really amazing that the show managed to be on the air for basically a regular season, despite everything. I mean, when, when you were on set, what was that like navigating all of the COVID protocols? It was pretty wild. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I was able to be there in the before time. So I knew what it was supposed to run like. Cause I think if I were new to it, it would have been really overwhelming but not everything ran the way that it, in, um, in the same way that it was supposed to, you know, our cue cards were, which are normally on the same floor and they get re- rewritten as the sketches get rewritten and in time for the sketches were on a different floor completely. We were on the eighth floor, they were on the third floor, people were physically running up and down stairs and it was intense. It was not the normal way of doing it. And I think because it's such a testament to that show that because it's something that is a well-oiled machine and has been going on in a certain way for so long, they were able to draw from all of the things that make it what it is and do the best they could under those circumstances. But it was still really hard. We did a lot fewer sketches and it was just different. It was just different. You know, it wasn't a regular audience. It was healthcare workers and they were wearing masks and there weren't as many people in the room. It wasn't a full capacity audience and people weren't laughing as freely because everyone's afraid of dying. You know, there's that too. So <laughs> it's... It was sort of puts a damper yeah, on the mood. Yeah, it was yeah. surreal. And at the same time, it was also very joyful to be among other human beings in a safe environment. So the whole thing was just really, I feel so lucky to have been a part of it because it was something that truly had never been done before. And it was just a once in a lifetime experience, you know, um, just like everything. I feel that, I, I've always felt that way about that show and I love the ability to harness all things in a in a live show. I think that's just the most exciting part of it. And it's just, you know, it's my favorite format. It's my favorite place. But I uh but yeah, it was for me just if anything just really cathartic to be doing something at that time because it was a really frustrating time, it was a really depressing time and it was a really scary time and it felt like as Lauren was sort of pep talking us, you know, through it all saying like it was, it did feel like being on the right side of history. Yeah, for sure. And there were elements of the show. I mean, there were still guest stars, there were still ambitious sketches. Um, was really fun to watch, uh, your Kamala Harris opposite Martin Short's Doug Emhoff. Um, I know that you and Martin Short have a, a long friendship and collaboration, uh, going back years. Uh, was that your idea for him to Guest star no, as your husband. and I don't know whose it was, but it was uh, like no one had to ask me. It was just like Marty's coming. It was like, oh, thank God. Okay, great. You know, how perfect. You know, somebody who I knew was going to be, you know, physical and deeply affectionate and and so likable and um, so goddamn funny. So you know that part. That part is nice because then you can you know with routine, with, with knowing people, you can start to fill in the blanks more easily. And that one, that one was definitely one of them where I thought like, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be really fun. 
And during the show also, uh, during the bumpers that appeared in the episode, it looked like you were creating a couple of recreating a couple of your mother's old album covers, um, in photos. And I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, that must've been sort of an emotional, but hopefully joyful experience. It was joyful. We just, we did it last time I hosted and we did it this time too. And it's only because Mary Ellen Matthews, the photographer is so incredible. And also she and I are so connected and know each other for so long and so well. So that felt just like, you know, that place feels like home for me. And so it was kind of a comforting, loving tribute. Also because, you know, she knows how much the show means to me and how much it's sort of like a full circle moment for me. And I think that makes it the right and the unique place to do something like that. Cause that, that experience and being in that studio for me feels like a you know, look at me, ma, kind of moment <laughs> still for me. So it all kind of made made sense. Like, wow, I did I did something with my life. It feels feels nice. Yeah, and you mentioned that your children uh, were also all in the audience yeah. during that night. What was their experience like? Oh my god, they went crazy. Like that was, you know, that was everything. I think you know. I think the, were they around for the rest of the week? Um, as much as they could be with COVID. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you know, it's nice to get to like raise people and then have them find things that they're into and they're into the show right now. And so that was so cool to get to show them like, look what mommy does and look what I you know, <laughs> look at these things that I do and like have them relate to it was so exciting. And we had all been in the you know lockdown together for 14 months and that was the first foray out like into the world. And so I think that was a pretty that was a pretty big one. Was there a particular moment from that night or from the season that kind of stands out to you as, you know, your favorite? I I love doing the Beyonce Hot Wings sketch. It was so fun. It was so much fun. I can't even like, you know, it's just like sometimes like people just write stuff and you're like, oh, this is the best. This is the best job. It's so goofy. It's so funny. I'm laughing. Like we're all laughing. It's just silly and, and enjoyable. And like, that's kind of what the whole week was like, given how bananas the circumstances were because we were all wearing masks. I was losing my voice because you're trying to talk to each other and make this, the changes for the sketches. And at the same time, you're like yelling through your mask. And then the COVID police are saying, stay six feet apart. And, you know, there's all that. So um, that was totally one of those things. And that was just like, it made it all worth it. Cause we, we were all, we were all just laughing, but you know, I, I like getting a chance to like, just to, dip into whatever they're doing there. And it was fun. It was like a, you know, I'm a weirdo. I like, like, to me, that was like a vacation. It's like, would you like to take a week long vacation at SNL? Yes. Yes, I would. To me, that's like a nice hotel stay. It's like enjoyable. Maybe we should uh, transition over to talking about Big Mouth a little bit, um, which you were also nominated for, which you also won for last year. Um, This category is so stacked. I was just reading about who else is nominated. It's uh, you, Jessica Walter, Stacey Abrams, Julie Andrews, Stanley Tucci, Titus Burgess, and Seth MacFarlane. It's the craziest Jeez. lineup. I would like to just watch the seven of you have dinner, I think. <laughs> that sounds... I, I'd be into that. Especially Jessica, if she could show up. That would be very... That would be unique and very cool. I, I, I think... Um, yeah, I like that that's the universal link for all of us is that it's it's animation. So it's 
it's anyone and anything. You know, I mean, I'm being nominated for voicing a character for a monster, you know, it's not even a human. <laughs> and it's funny, I was reading about the show, I didn't realize that the original plan for Big Mouth was for you just to play Nick Kroll's character's mother, that, uh, that the hormone monstrous wasn't even a character yet. She wasn't. Yeah, she was just one of those things that we tried because um, Nick had started doing it for his Nick character. So um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll ask you to play, you know, can you do the voice of this of the school principal or can you, you know, do the voice of this dirty motel pillow? Can you do this um, hormone monstrous for Jesse? And that was like, you know, something we all had to find together. Um, but that's the beauty of like, all the, you know, working with people that know, know you well and like know your voice and say like, oh, Maya, would, it would be fun if Maya tried this or, you know, we'll give this to so-and-so and they'll do it. And we all play a ton of different stuff on the show. And every once in a while, we get to have characters that come back. And Connie was just one of those that we all like fell in love with. So they just kept writing her for me. And the next thing I know, it was like, it's all I, it's like, the majority of what I do on the show now. And you've been playing this role for four years. Um, do you feel like, how do you feel like the character has evolved over the course of those seasons? Well, she's just obviously like the, the writers love writing for her because she, everything I say is gold. Every single thing that Connie says is so much fun to say. And I think it's because it's so uninhibited. It's all of the things that you wish you could say and that you'll never that will never come out of you, that you would have to be pushed to say. She's the unfiltered version of all of us. So, um, you know, she gets to be this dynamic, powerful, sexy, you know, forceful, feeling, emotional woman. Well, I mean, monster, female, whatever she is. So um, I think that she's just been such a fun place to go because she can say anything and like, there's no rhyme or re- like she she can do it. She she's allowed to feel. She's allowed to to cry and yell in the same breath, and we forgive her for it because she's just you know just raging with hormones. It's very freeing. So I think she's just become this like fun kind of poster child, you know, for this kind of like being who you are like or or speaking up or being stronger and i think she because she's encouraged you know the jesse character to to have all these experiences and live more and do all this stuff it's just yeah it's like we're living vicariously through her for sure um and the show the show is so great it's so realistic while also just being like so disgusting in a way that feels really really unique and like really fun to watch um is there ever any like line that you've read or storyline that you've read and felt like at least initially like oh man this like crosses a line I'm not sure if I can say this I definitely get very shy uh, recording a lot of this stuff it's funny like I'd forgotten because you know we record things so early until they on and then they come out much later and the episode that I won for last year was called How to Have an Orgasm, but I didn't remember that. So, and it wasn't like, I'm not the one that says it on the show kind of thing. So I, I just, like, it wasn't in my mind. And then I was so excited to get my Emmy and then I brought it home and it was like, you know, says my name and Big Mouth and it's like, How to Have an Orgasm. I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. Like, it's embarrassing. <laughs> 
I feel like a real breakthrough for the show maybe or for this character specifically was the way that she pronounces bubble bath that that is kind of like a just a really signature unique line reading that you gave but just watching this episode i think she does something similar with usb port <laughs> and with uh, an airbnb above barry's boot camp yeah. is there something about the letter b that's funny or the letter b is just a really um delicious you know letter for her to sink her teeth into we we found the um we found that uh bubble bath was an early one i think when we had first started recording connie i think she i think bubble bath was like one of the first things where we sort of found her rhythm, you know, cause they were talking me through sort of getting like the highs and the lows of the way that she speaks. And then just making a meal out of bubble bath, just like luxuriating in the, the letter and the letter, I don't know. I make it, I make it a very buoyant kind of juicy B, I guess. So, um, once I think that seemed to come naturally and I think it also like there's certain phrases or, or words that allow the character's voice to click in. And I think once that one made a lot of sense for all of us and clicked in, then we all kind of, you know, then they started writing a lot of, a lot of bees for, for Connie. It's good to have a signature. I'll take it. I, you know, I was so beyond the, the bubble bath thing was so insane because people started like making songs of it and, it was an amazing uh, drag show I saw based on the, like the house remix of me singing Bubble Bath. And I was like, it just took on like a whole new level. It was very, very exciting. That is exciting. Um, and the show is such like a, has such a really like poignant uh, point of view when it comes to depicting puberty and adolescence and everything. Are there any storylines watching it that kind of resonated with you? I know that your character isn't, you know, one of the ones who's going through all of these things herself, but... No, so. I mean, I think, you know, I'm definitely the, the, probably the comic relief of all that. Um, but I liked, I actually, I mean, it wasn't specifically for me, but I actually really loved the Planned Parenthood episode. I thought that was, that was pretty wonderful and well done. I don't know. I've been doing it for a really long time. It's been, you said it's Is four it hard years. to kind of think back and remember yeah, specific? Yeah, we're also like, we're doing, we're doing totally different episodes right now that I started to think about one is like playing Diane as the parent and like the mom of the teenagers. And I was like, I don't think that's out yet. So I think I did that recently, but it's coming. Well, good to know. Yeah. And there's also a spinoff coming. Yes. Human resources. So Connie's going to be a big part of that as well. well. That's exciting. Can you say any more about it? I was just more in the world of the, of all of the, the monsters, not just the hormone monsters, but running the gamut of emotions, feelings, everything. So I think it's just more of that, like amazing, you know, cause they started bringing in some pretty great concepts of like, um, the gratitude and shame wizard and different little things, I think along the way that really helped spotlight feelings and things that people were going through in puberty and adolescence and life depression. The, 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 the was it the, the depression kitty, I think was one of them that was really great. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just way more into the world of the gamut of the human emotional psyche. It's, it's a show where anything can happen. So asking this question is kind of, you know, there are endless possibilities, but is there anything that you haven't done on it yet that you want to want to do um, as Connie, as one of the other characters? I mean, no, there is nothing that I'm like, you know what I wish? It's like, no, we've, we've done, I mean, 
you know, ghosts have sex on this show. Like there's no, there's really no end to the possibilities of this show. I'm always more of a fan of it and I'm just like along for the ride. And I, I enjoy the, the things that, um, that are handed to me. And I'm always thanking them when I'm reading my stuff because it's pretty unbelievable. But, um, but I, I do know good things are coming and that's exciting. And now finally, we have my interview with Juno Temple, who is nominated for an Emmy for playing Keely on Ted Lasso. Uh, she was really lovely to talk to. It was a really long conversation. You'll hear just a small part of it. And she was kind of hanging out in her beautiful pink Los Angeles apartment. Um, and she talked about how playing Keely has made her a better person, which I think is sounds like a platitude, but I find really true. I find thinking about what Keely would do in a situation makes me a better person. And she talked about uh, Hannah Waddingham, her co-star, who plays Rebecca, and how she thinks she's going to win the Emmy, which I love, and how genuinely thrilled she seemed by that prospect. So let's hear the interview with Juno Temple. I didn't realize you had been the Vanity's opener in Vanity Fair in like 2011 when you were, oh. I think, 21 or something like that. Like, I was so about to say, young. like, no joke. <laughs> I, I, years and years ago now, I won a, a, an award in the UK, which is the BAFTA Rising Star Awards. Mm-hmm. So it's like the person on the rise, you know, 10, 15 years later, still rising, still <laughs> rising. <laughs> Taking my sweet ass time with it. <laughs> When you get something like that, then are you like, it's done, I've risen, like it's all, you know, set from here, even then where you kind of like, okay, it's so No, process. God, no. Oh my God. I think you can never think that anything is concrete in this industry, um, which is part of the thrill of it. You yeah. have to keep, because ultimately it comes down to the work. So if you don't do your job, you're not going to keep getting work, you know? And to do your job, you have to be passionate about everything you you get to dip your toes into. Well, and, you've worked I, so much, like in like in that time since then. Like you've done such a range of stuff, made so many different movies. It's like you, like you don't sit still for any one point in any of that. No, I'm not great at that. My head isn't kind to me if I do it for too long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I sometimes have to remind myself: work is work. You know, you can't be too dependent on it. You know, um, but I love working. I love the exploration of humans that it allows you know it is kind of like the university of humanity being an actor the learning and the openness that you get to have about all different kinds of lives and 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 people and thoughts and turn-ons and turn-offs and fears and excitements and yeah it's a, I find it quite I don't know. It's, um, sometimes I still feel like I'm dreaming it all because I love it so much and I lo- and I grew up loving it so much. I grew up living in fantasy worlds, creating characters all the time, but also watching movies that would take me to other places, you know? Do you have that, that blurry line between the fantasy and reality when you start doing that so young of, of kind of imagining yourself in somebody's shoes and then having to return to yourself? Do you have to learn how to set your boundaries there? I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... I think that um, yeah, it's funny. I guess the role that I, I'm saving till last is the role of actual Juno, I suppose. But I, I think that, you know, I can figure her out later. <laughs> or, or it's like a slow a slow process as all these other roles come into my life. Because I learned so much through playing all these different amazing female characters I've been able to play, you know? I mean, like, like you said, very, very different characters. And from a young age and having empathy for all different types of characters and understanding each person is truly an individual and you cannot try and predict them. 
ever. It's just, that's rude. So you just have to roll with it and listen and learn and be open and all of that. And and I think through the process of all of that, I definitely think that's that's helped shape me as a, I was about to say, an adult, which is not true. As a, <laughs> a, uh, sometimes adult, sometimes child. A youth, still. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, I, yeah, it's definitely been a huge kind of guidance, I suppose. Do you think that teaches you empathy when you've been acting like that for most of your life, that you just, like, you're learning to see from other people's perspective? Because I think sometimes acting can make you less empathetic if you're, like, famous and you don't have to think about other people. But it sounds like you've approached it from a completely different perspective. I think the minute you lose empathy for people, you're not going to be good at the job anymore because there's a big difference between pretending to be somebody else and convincing yourself and other people that you are somebody else. There is a mm-hmm. difference in that, you know? And I think without empathy, it starts becoming pretend. It's a kind of like a lie. And convincing yourself and other people that you are somebody else is, to me, a truth. And if we do it in our real lives, they say it can be a way to grow. You know, you convince yourself that today you're not going to be upset or... Uh, frustrated by a mistake you made yesterday or whatever and you mm. it, you you start to really believe it because you're convincing yourself of it you're not pretending it it's not yeah, yeah, yeah. and there is a really big difference there and I think empathy is a key ingredient to that because it's what makes you forgive without overthinking the forgiveness you know even if that's for yourself or other people around you or or for a role you're playing you know sometimes I've never I've never been afraid to play roles that sometimes people, like even with Palmer, even doing press for Palmer, it was interesting, certain journalists and how they described the character of Shelley. And I was like, ah, you've made your mind up about her before you've, right, this is interesting. You know, because I I think, again, and everyone's into, you know, I would never want to change anybody. That's their business. But it is interesting how different people empathize about different things. Do you have you encountered that a lot before where you talk to people about the character and they you you you've played like challenging characters a lot of times you've been in challenging movies you've played like I think about Afternoon Delight where you're this character who kind of like comes in and upends a world and it's like there's to empathize with someone like that is your challenge and then you make us empathize with them and do you have you run into people being like judging your characters in a way that yeah that you def- oh my god definitely and also judging my career sometimes mm-hmm. you know like kind of having made their mind up because I I have made those choices I've also definitely not been afraid to explore sexuality throughout my career because that's something that as a woman in my life I'm still exploring on a daily basis you know and the relationship with my own body and like learning not to hate it sometimes or Mm. learning how to inhabit it in my real life where I I don't obsess about certain things or wish I was somebody else all the time you know things like that And, and and I think so I think there's yeah I've definitely encountered that again I think people are always entitled to their opinions and their own thoughts and feelings and whatever it might trigger a a performance that I've gotten to play and a creature that I've gotten to inhabit and how that would affect somebody is entirely theirs, you know? And, and I, there's that phrase where people always say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which I, I actually don't fully believe that, but I do (laughs) think that a version of it which to me makes a lot more sense what doesn't kill you makes you interesting at parties because sometimes Mm. you go through things that make you really fragile and make you hard on yourself and make you um not want to wake up you know but sometimes reliving it can be the most interesting way of actually dealing with it and talking Mm. about it but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've gotten stronger it just means that within talking about it you're understanding it I guess 
And I think that's also a way of empathizing that it doesn't have to any battle that you go through, uh, whether it be in your personal life or in <clears throat> a work situation, or it is about understanding it so you can empathize with it, right? I was reading an interview you did sometime last year, and you kind of referenced like a TV thing that you did in London for five months. Uh, you know, this is before Ted Lasso had premiered. And you you talked about how fame hadn't really gotten under your skin in a way. Like you've been able to kind of like live your life and not think about it. Has Ted Lasso changed that? Uh, I think, it, I mean, I used to get it in, you know, if I got stopped, it'd be someone being like, hey, uh, I know you. Do we go to school together? I'd be like, um... No. <laughs> and then they'd be like looking at me and like, oh no uh yeah oh my god um yeah and they realize they've seen a movie where my boobs are out or something and they're in the, <laughs> you know we're in the grocery aisle of trader joe's and they want to get some cheerios or something and i'm like thank you yeah it's cool <laughs> and now i guess it's the changes is that if people stop me and want to say something it's they actually know the character that they want to say it about and then they might say something about other other jobs but it was Keely that kind of introduced them to maybe exploring other projects that I'm in as like oh I'm interested in what this actress is doing you know Mm -hmm. but I think that I'm also I I guess I I hang out at home a lot I I like to create things I like to make jewelry and I sketch and I uh watch a lot of movies and I, I, I like to have my girlfriends come and hang out and um also since the pandemic obviously everything's changed with how how you explore the outside world and what you get to do and it, I've also been very lucky and I've been working for the past sort of year which means that I also want to respect the work that I'm doing and not risk getting anybody sick mm-hmm. uh so also that has meant that I maybe haven't gone out as much, but it was definitely an interesting transition after finishing season two in London where we were really in tight lockdown on that job and, you know, getting tested three to four times a week. I mean, I as I said to my mom, like, I couldn't be in a safer situation. I'm lucky. Little tight, you know? <laughs> like, But uh, I, I experienced for the first time kind of leaving the house and, and people genuinely recognising you and stopping you and saying, like, oh, man. And... It's something that is a, it's an interesting experience because I am terrified of the idea of becoming a, a, a you know, household name or, or being a universally recognizable person just because I'm very private about a lot of things. Unless I'm meeting you one-on-one, then I'm an open book. I don't, you know, <laughs> then I think it's like, because I think you can learn a lot from that. But um, I think things can be misconstrued when they're taken by the masses, you know, and... And so on that side of things, that's kind of ter- always been quite terrifying to me because also then it's harder to be a chameleon. It's harder to, you, it's like, I love I love my job and, you know, Frances McDormand or Kate Blanchett are two actresses that I just think are extraordinary. And actually, when I think about them, they aren't being talked about unless they want to be being talked about normally because there's a project that they want to be talking about. And they, even though to me, I know their faces, I know them, I recognize them in anything that they're coming out in on my, you know, TV or cinemas. And um, yet I forget that it's them when I'm watching the movie. And so the ability to do that is something that I strive for, which then makes me less fearful of being, you know, those two, two women, I think, are an example of being brilliant at their job. But then also private women that are getting on with their own lives privately as well. But I do also really love Keely, and I feel... 
I mean, I don't want it to sound kind of trite for saying this, but I really do feel honoured to play her and lucky. And so I, I really love talking about her and I love talking to people about her and about what the show brought into their life, you know? Um, even if it's as simple as just saying, like, wow, I really, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I love hearing that, too. And so, but that being said, I have things changed enormously. Not really, because I don't go out so much. <laughs> um, and because uh, I had some of my classmates that were uh, out here doing press things, and then they went to New York. So it was like Jeremy Swift and Brett Goldstein and Hannah Wadding. I met, and they all went to New York afterwards. And Brett was telling me, he was like, it was crazy. We couldn't go more than a block without being recognized by a bunch of people. Um, I wanted to ask how the Emmys work into that, too, when you've got this character who you love and you've got this kind of, you know, you have the cloister experience of making this show that becomes this big hit. And then suddenly, not only are you nominated for awards, but you're, you know, you're in a category with Hannah Waddingham, like those four guys are all in the same category together. Like, whether or not you guys feel competition with each other, like, just how does it feel to have an award kind of tied in with this experience that's already meant so much to you? I still have, I guess I still am fully processed entirely what that means to me because it felt when it initially happened on the day it felt like this just extraordinary appreciation for all the people on this show and the people behind the camera the people that have the pieces that they record and then they are the ones that put it together you know the sound all of it like there was appreciation across the board for the show which to me felt like an extended rap party or something extraordinary you know because it was Mm -hmm. like wow the whole family got to celebrate that moment and have have their work be appreciated as as a unit, which felt really special. And I could not be more grateful that I get to go through this with Hannah because she is like a real life kind of guardian angel that came into my universe. And I think that it's scary, you know, it's scary. It's uh, it's like such an incredible thing to get a nomination like that because that's people appreciating you for what you love doing the most mm-hmm. but it is scary because you're then also gonna keep challenging yourself to like oh okay well, I've got to just keep getting better I've got to, I've got to the next I've got to just keep bringing it you so you don't it, it, it it's sort of like I guess I haven't processed it yet because I I, I want to nail season three I want to nail the character I'm playing at the moment I want to that I really care about the work. And I think the actual awards and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully we do get to go in person and the cast will be out here and stuff because like, I will feel very excited to go through that with Hannah. I really, really do. I think it would be something I was there with her when she won her critics choice award and it was magic. Mm. And, and, you know, I really, I really, really, I think she might win. And I really think that would be exciting. <laughs> I really do. I think that it's one of those things where, for me, I really, and I know people are probably not going to believe this because they, whatever, but I, 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 I never thought that was a part of my trajectory of my career. Do you know what I mean? I feel mm-hmm. like it's, and I think Hollywood could really, really use seeing a woman like that accept an award and hear her speech and see her beauty and see her, realness and her bravery and vulnerability and her grace and I think she is a truly spectacular woman and I think it would be a very very wonderful thing 
if she won at this moment in time, especially just for women, seeing her for being who she is. I think it would be a really special thing. Well, I hope you get to go to the Emmys. I know nobody seems to know yet, but it seems like probably I hope you get to wear something fantastic and you guys have earned a celebration together. That's the other, I will say the the press stuff, getting to do press that's kind of all intertwined with Keely is that like, I get to channel my inner Keely with wardrobe stuff, mm-hmm. which like was so much fun for the premiere to bust out pink wig and wear it, you know, a oh, while. Beautiful. Well, it was like, it was so cool because it was like, again, you know, press stuff kind of makes me nervous like that. A red carpet at a premiere and stuff was like, wow, that's an anxiety attack waiting to happen. But getting to put on that kind of look, it was very much, I felt like I was channeling my inner Keely, which was a good way of kind of approaching that red carpet being like, yeah, I think I made Keely proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've always done amazing stuff with your hair. Like you just kind of like use the mane of hair so often. Um, and Keely does the same thing too. I have so much wig glue in my hair. <laughs> 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 I have no choice than to have it in a top knot at the moment. But like, yeah, no, Keely's hair drawer and my hair drawer are not dissimilar. We've got a lot of... Uh, <laughs> A lot of accoutrement for our heads. It's just like there's a power in it, I think. When I, when you're a small person, too, I think if you have gigantic hair, it makes people pay attention to you and, and, and listen to you. So I like that, that you and Keely both recognize that. Yeah, and also you can create, like, because obviously not that is by no means nearly all me, Keely's hair. And I have, it like, a drawer that I warn people if you're, oh, uh, don't open that, that's a lot, because it looks quite frightening. It's just a drawer of hair. <laughs> But I love that one day, you know, you can rock a fucking 60s half up, half down deal. Or one day you can do a pink wig, which I have two pink wigs. I have also for audition purposes, I've got a little brown wig. I've got a very, very, very blonde wig. I've got like, I love that kind of stuff. I think it's another way of kind of uh, getting to play dress up in your real life that that I, 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 I really enjoy doing that. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with a preview of uh, the upcoming fall festivals, which start next week with a whole bunch of our colleagues going to Telluride. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And David. David Canfield 97. And you can find Richard, as always, at Rylaws. You can also sign up to receive text from us and text us back at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text us at 213-513-7169. We love hearing from you. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for our response when the inevitable Little Gold Men backlash starts goes to Richard Lawson. It's a nice show, you asshole. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.